Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to uh, Morning Morning Deep Dish. My name is Shepard Price, and with me today is Dave Melton. Say hi to the people, Dave. Hi to the people, Dave. Uh, today, in honor of Tuesday's game against the Florida Panthers, uh, the Blackhawks have a day off today, but they'll be facing Florida, whose logo resembles their new head coach. Uh, yes, it does. Alarmingly so. Yes, uh, and that is uh, former Blackhawks head coach, uh, the legend, maybe the greatest head coach in the history of Chicago, of Chicago sports, Phil Jackson, is the debate, Dirk Wendell. Yeah, that would be an interesting debate because, I mean, Jackson was great and all, but he also had, you know, Jordan and Pippen and Rodman and Taves and Kane are great, but they are not too hockey what Michael Jordan was to basketball, but – no. I, we, yeah. we may, we'll have to cross that bridge. Maybe, maybe that'll be the summer thing we yell at each other about. Yes, maybe that's a, maybe that's the off-season episode. There we go. All right, yeah, little teaser for the summer. Yeah. So while we start, uh, let's let's start talking about Q uh, at the at, at the at the beginning. Uh, since I wasn't around, I became a fan and sort of the you lockout. You were dead. You were dead <laughs> No. Uh, so you, you were around in 2010, I assume. I was, yes. Very much so. What, what are your memories of sort of the time when Denny Savard was fired by the Blackhawks to make room for Joel Quenville? It, I just, it was really weird timing because I believe the Blackhawks won the last game of Dennis Savard's tenure. And I'm, I'm going to look this up as I'm talking, but, and hopefully this doesn't ruin everything, but, uh, it was like, it was Three or four games into the season, it was very a very quick move. And I think there was uh, some surprise, especially because of Dennis Savard having the standing he does within the organization. You know, he's a Hall of Fame hockey player. Uh, the Hawks lost the first three games. Then they beat the Coyotes. And then they fired Savard. So it was really weird. But I think it was always kind of the writing on the wall was that Quinville was going to come in because they hired him in some weird – organizational position and it always seemed like he was going to be the head coach of the team soon and uh the main thing I remember when they hired Quinville the knock on him at the time from what I remember is that he was a good coach in the regular season but he couldn't quite get it done in the postseason because he had really good teams in Colorado and he had some really good teams in St. Louis but they never seemed to pan out when the postseason came around so I think I was me personally I was slightly worried about the fact that maybe he can't get this team over the hump. Uh, and maybe this will just be another team, uh, just another series of teams that are good but not great, even despite the talent that they were assembling. So there's, there's a little bit of concern there, but I think those concerns were immediately relieved. Maybe not immediately, but the first postseason the Hawks had under Quinville when they, they beat Calgary in five games, which was – you know, I, I don't think was too much of a shock. But then when they went into and went to face a Vancouver team that they were not as not as seasoned as Vancouver was at the time, and they beat them pretty handily as you as handily as you can in a six game series. That's when it started to seem like Quinville's definitely the guy for this job. And then I think it just kind of evolved from there to where they won three cups. And in hindsight, now um, I mean, it looks like such a great move, and I don't think anybody can say anything bad about it now. But I think when that move first happened, I was a little, a little bit worried. Yeah, especially considering the Blackhawks were coming off of a really deep playoff run without the greatest free agent signing in the history of Chicago sports, Marion Hosa. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. There, there's another fun debate, but yeah, like they were, 
they were just like you knew if something good was happening. Like uh, with Savard's last season, the Hawks were they just missed the playoffs, uh, just barely. I think it was like three or four points that they ended up missing that last year. But even as you went into that offseason, you knew something special was being built. And uh, I think it was the following summer when they signed Hosa because Hosa this the year they signed Hosa is the year they won the first cup. But anyway, um, it was it was just kind of. It was just like another another layer on top of the just this momentum that was building in Chicago. And then when they added a coach that had been around the NHL for a decade, even though he may not have had the Stanley Cup pedigree that you would have wanted necessarily, there was still this this thought that this guy knows how to win. This guy knows what's going on, and uh, it just it seemed like it added another layer of credibility to what the Blackhawks were were building. Right, and he had a Jack Adams coming in from his time in St. Louis. Yeah, he had some very good team. I mean, he was I, – I, any Blackhawks fan should have been familiar with Quinville because he coached St. Louis and Colorado, and Chicago played those teams a ton. And uh, they – I mean, St. Louis in the 99-2000 season, I think I think that was the year they won the President's Trophy. They had – I'm looking at it now, they had 114 points. So he had some really good teams. Never seemed to pan out in the playoffs for whatever reason. Obviously, he fixed that in Chicago. But, uh, but yeah, it was – it was just another legitimate legitimization of what was coming about. It was a, it was a move that sort of cemented it that, that like Gerard Gallant in Vegas that made, made it a real organization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you knew with like Taves and Kane were coming of age and, and Keith and Seabrook and Yalmerson were all starting to come up. Even some of the deaf guys or depth guys like, uh, like Dave Bolin and Christopher Stieg and Andrew Ladd, like some of those guys are starting to develop too. And, your Burrish and Ben Eagers and Colin Frazier's, everything was starting to come together. And I think the coach was a question mark. It was just, you know, I mean, to make a comparison, it was just like the Cubs when they had all their studs coming up and Ricky Renteria was their manager. And there was some question about how much of a contender he could make a team. So then they went out and got Joe Madden and then they went and won the World Series. I think it's a very similar story with what the Blackhawks did. Although the Blackhawks did it first, so the Cubs just copied them. Exactly, and the, and the Cubs fired their manager in a, in a shorter t- in a shorter time span than the Blackhawks yeah. did theirs. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. The the afterburn for between Madden and Quinville is a lot different though, just because I mean, obviously Quinville had much more success. I think the black the the Cubs wish they had what the Blackhawks have right now, but uh, they still got time to get there, I guess. Let's talk about Quinville's system a little bit, since we're currently in the midst of having to watch Jeremy Collins, and it's a completely different system. At least I think Jeremy Colleton wants it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he was trying to just make his mark and, and do something completely different uh, yeah. than what Quinville did. But I, th- I think just the number one thought, and, and I think this is what I appreciated so much about Joel Quinville was he was kind of like – he gave off that vibe that he was like an old school guy, but the way he wanted his team to play was decidedly not old school. It was a very much preached a puck possession type of game. He wanted players, he wanted defensemen joining the play when they could. He wanted offense. Um, he wanted offense to be more. You know, it was it was a team that seemed like entirely centered around puck movement and puck possession, which wasn't really the the old school way to do it. And it was a combination of a, a very good system that was paired with the perfect type of team to execute it because the Hawks had defensemen who were capable of cutting off entries at the blue line, getting possession back, and then giving it to the Fords and then going the other direction. And I think Duncan Keith might have been the absolute perfect player for that type of system because 
that like seemed like the Hawks' main things during that entire last decade was um, you're not going to gain entry against the Hawks, and the Hawks are going to skate the puck into the zone because of how they break out of their own end and get through new, the neutral zone. And those two factors, it, the Hawks really did that better than anyone, and they were doing it before anyone else really was, and that's what led to them being so successful. I wouldn't call it like a revolutionary thing. Like it, I don't think Quinville was ever the first person to come up with it, but the Hawks just did it so well that they won three cups in six years. Right, and it wasn't like it wasn't like the trap where it was boring hockey. It was, no. it was always sort of this exciting game where where the where the Blackhawks sort of built on their speed. Oh yeah, it was it was so much fun to watch. It was it was counterattack city. Like every time, you know, when Keith or Seabrook or Yalmerson, whoever it was, would would cut off a play at the blue line, and then one or two quick passes, quick transition the other way. Like it felt like they scored in transition more than any hockey team I'd ever watched in my life. And that's that's fun hockey. That's not like dump and chase, run it, run a cycle in the corner for five minutes, and then the puck kicks out to the point and a shot just happens to go in. Like this this was really, really fun, exciting back and forth hockey that was very pleasing to the eye and, and it was a lot of fun just because they kept winning with it. Right. And you watched any of like the Blackhawks legendary goals from that time span when they had Quenville. It was it, a lot of the time it was from right in front of the net that the shot came from. Yeah, yeah. I mean they were able to they were able to pick apart teams just with their passing and their skating ability because they had the skill, they had the, the players with the hands and the feet able to do it. And not a lot of other teams had that ability. Yeah. And, and Quenville sort of, he elevated the players he had too, because you look at Brian Campbell and the course sort of career he had after the Blackhawks and even Dustin Bufflin was, didn't have the same level of success after he left the Blackhawks. He said he hasn't won a cup in Winnipeg. Yeah, and I think that's one of the – should be one of the enduring legacies of the Quinville area because there were so many players that achieved the best years of their career or the best eras of their career under Quinville's watch. I mean, Duncan Keith was good, but he became great under Quinville. Brent Seabook realized his first-round potential under under Quinville. Uh, Yalmerson did. I mean, Johnny Oduya was – fine in uh in his other he was in like Winnipeg I think he played with the Thrashers for well same franchise Winnipeg and the Thrashers but Oduya came to Chicago and was phenomenal on that pairing with the Almerson I mean there were so many it was and it seemed like it was always guys on the blue line because I believe Quinville was a defenseman himself during his yep. playing career so he knew how to get the most out of his own defenseman and he knew how to I, I guess he just he just seemed like he knew how to get these guys to play the way he wanted to play. And he also seemed like he put these guys in position to maximize their abilities. Like, for example, the, the Jalmerson Odia pairing that I, I referenced earlier, like that was the, the prototypical shutdown pairing for that team for about three to four seasons. I, starting with the 2013 team all the way through the cup year in 2015. And I think Odia left that following summer. So, so for three seasons, Anytime they needed a defensive play, Jalmerson and Odia were out there to handle it. And that allowed Keith and Seabrook to be slightly more offensive-oriented since they didn't have to take on the, the top line of the opponents. So Keith was able to really work the transition game that made him so effective. Brent Seabrook was able to do his 50- or 100-foot stretch passes that became the hallmark of his career. And that's those two pairings alone were – 
a significant portion of why the Hawks were so good for so many years. I mean, I, I think you remember the 2015 season when I, I remember vividly remember them watching and talking about it on the post game show after one of the playoff games. I think it was during the Duck series when they they listed the ice times and Keith and Seabrook, you almost didn't know, do you had played like between 80 to 90 percent of the game, and the other pairing was Letty and Roosevelt saw maybe like five, six, seven minutes. And they were saying on TV, like, I don't know how they're going to win a series with these guys playing this many minutes, but it worked. So like, that's, that's the overarching trump card you have with everything Quinville did, but it worked. For so long, right. it worked. So you can't really – you don't really have anything else to say other than it worked. Right. And talking about that sort of shutdown pairing, that was another, that was another signature of the, of the Quinville era was the sort of shutdown line that you had – guys like Andrew Shaw and Andrew Desjardins and, uh, and especially Dave Boland and oh, Michael Broly and, oh, Marcus, and, and Marcus Kruger, the guys <laughs> who sort of just shut down the top line of the opponent and let Kane yeah. and Taves and, and Hosa and all those legends sort of just drive offense. I, I think – I didn't really understand this concept in hockey until Quinville became the coach and they started talking about it, the idea of chasing matchups on the ice. And whenever the Hawks played at home, they had the last change. It was Dave for the first cup and, a, and maybe the second one too. That it was the Dave Boland line. I think the first cup it would have been Boland, Ladd, and Versteeg would always be out for defensive draws against the Sedin lines or the Thornton line or whoever or the Flyers top line. I can't even remember who it was at the time, but uh, Boland would always be the guy. And then the 13 cup it was Boland, Froelich, I think, and Kruger. I think was that line. And then in 2015, like you mentioned, it was Kruger, Desjardins, and Shaw. And those, those three lines, not only did they take the toughest assignments, were usually starting in the defensive zone, but typically they ended up on the positive side of the possession ledger, which is it's, it's, hard. It's, it's, it's very difficult to do. Like, not a lot of lines can do that. And, but Quinville seemed to always be able to find that group and then have success with that line. And then not only do you absorb your, your opponent's strongest punch every single time you're on the ice, but then that frees up the line with Taves on it and the line with Canes on it, those lines are freed up to attack against a inferior matchup. And again, that's part of what made the Hawks so successful is that their top offensive players were, didn't have to face the top players from the other team because uh, their shutdown line could handle it. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and that's exactly well. what they haven't had since 2015 because they've never really replaced the, Oduya and Yalmerson pairing, although it seems like they might be getting there with Connor Murphy this season, and they they haven't really got that good shutdown checking line since uh, Kruger left the first time he left town. When he came back the second time, he didn't it didn't click quite as well for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean we we might be there might be some hope in Smith Carpenter and maybe Andrew Shaw, but there's I mean there there is some potential. I think now it's like you need to get get the top six situated, get Dylan Strom back into the lineup, and then then figure out what your top six is going to be. And then those bottom two lines, then you can figure out who's going to be your shutdown line with either Highmore or uh, Highmore, Smith, Carpenter, Kajula maybe. I mean, pick your whatever pairing you want, but maybe the Hoss can figure that out in the weeks ahead. Right, but it's not. it's also not like – Jeremy Collins' system relies on sort of having that shutdown line either. No, and, and I don't know if he 
harps on matchups as much as Quinville did. It seemed like Quinville was so like one of my main memories of of watching the Hawks is when they would have a matchup that wasn't quite what they wanted. The Hawks would win the draw, dump it in, and head for a change to get the matchup that Quinville wanted. That always seemed like that was such a major point of emphasis in the postseason to get the guys on the ice that he wanted in each situation. He never wanted to, as much as he could control it, he wanted to have a, uh, a matchup that benefited his team. And also, again, talking about the players he had that he also elevated, but he had a lot of great talent with him. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you had – he got the prime of Jonathan Taves. He got the prime of uh, Patrick Kane, Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook. He had – I think one of the most impressive things is that they won the Cup in 2010 with Antti Niemi, who turned out to be kind of just a guy. Like, he wasn't – he was good. He had – they. he probably – there were several games in the Sharks series that he kind of won by himself, but they got to the first game of the Stanley Cup final, he gave up five goals. And the Hawks still won that game and won the series. So there was never, you know, I think that was the was just such an impressive thing that they were able to win despite ever having uh, that first team didn't really have a great goalie. The other two had Corey Crawford, who was very good, and that helped, uh, that just made them even stronger. That's why that team rolled through everybody in 2013 because Crawford and Emery played so well behind a team of 18 skaters that were just phenomenal. But, but yeah, Quinville got, he got a ton of talent and he also really maximized so much of that talent. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what you want in a coach is that if you give him a good team, like, like Bowman and Talon gave Quinville that that coach will maximize them. And like, and on the other side of that coin too, it seemed like he never, whenever he seemed to sour on a prospect, Quinville, like in, in hindsight, he ended up being proven right. Like you can't, there aren't too many guys from that era. I, I really can't think of anyone from that era that one of the younger guys who seemed like he should have cracked the lineup, but never did, but then went somewhere else and had a great career. I mean. Right. Like you, you imagine, you remember like Free Morin. Yes. That that's, campaign, that's, and Perry, you and always all those start guys. with Jeremy Morin and Brandon Perry. Those are always the top two guys who just never seemed to pan out in Chicago. And Perry had a, some moments in some other teams, but he never like really sustained a career anywhere else. Jeremy Moore never did. Uh, Dylan Olson never did. I think the closest you could come up with is Nick Letty. And I think that's, that was more of a salary cap thing to where the Hawks knew they probably weren't going to be able to pay him. So they shipped him out and got a piece in return for him. But I'm, I'm trying to think of some of the other prospects around that time that were always, always seemed to be fringe guys, but never quite made it to the NHL level. But, uh, there were so many guys that like it seemed like Quinville just didn't trust or didn't have faith in. And he seemed to be proven right every single time because the guys would end up in another organization and never really amounted to much of anything. Right. Even, even in his later years with guys like uh, Trevor Daly and Ryan Garbutt and mm-hmm. those guys, Yuri Sakak, they all washed. Well, not Trevor Daly washed out of the league yet, but they all didn't, they didn't go on to like, great sustained success i mean trevor daly pretty much washed out of the league because he's playing with the red wings that barely counts as an nhl team anymore and also daly was just more of a a personnel thing where or it was like a uh i'm trying to think of the word for it but i remember the the big issue there is quinville wanted his defensemen to pass the puck out of their own end and trevor daly wanted to skate the puck out of his own end and that created enough of a, a friction between coach and player that they ended up trading trevor daly so it was yeah. more like a, a strategic mis, uh, 
disagreement between the players than a talent thing, and that's fine. Still, he he was he rigidly stuck to a system that worked and yeah, won three and, cups, and he and he had every right to. I mean, you can't like the, like the one some of the disagreements that it was obvious him and Stan Bowman weren't always the best of friends. They were more coworkers than than anything else. But uh, when like when they brought Barry Smith in at a practice to run the power play when the power play was garbage, which is a perpetual theme in the Blackhawks organization, apparently. But yes. like Quinville, like there, I've seen so many accounts of how much that infuriated Quinville to have somebody else come in and like and to do something different than what Quinville wanted because he had his way of doing things. He had his way. He had his belief of what worked in winning games at the NHL level and Again, he ended up being proven right pretty much all the time. I mean, again, we we talk about the power play that was never good under under Quenville, but that was the one thing that wasn't good because the PK and, works and the, the and, five on five really worked. And it was very much proven during Quenville's tenure that you can get by without a good power play. I, I think yeah. if you had to pick between a, a good power play or a good penalty kill, after watching what the Hawks did earlier this decade, I'll always take the good penalty kill over the good power play. Because it seems like being able to prevent goals in that situation is more important than being able to score goals. Right, because you can least, always get you. At, at least that's the way it seems so far, which I guess the fact that the Hawks have a very good power or penalty kill this season, maybe that's encouraging that things won't be so miserable when we get to April, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah. I mean, they're on a roll right now. I know, yeah. I, I will, Well, we'll get to that when we do uh, Musings on Madison later this week. There's – there's a. I'm having more fun watching the Hawks the last week than I have in years. So, or eh, maybe not years, but it's been. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about it later. It's been a lot of fun. I'm I'm having a. I'm talking to you. We're just the Hawks just finished beating the Jets, and that was one of again a very enjoyable game to watch. I never was really worried they were going to lose. Surprisingly. How how caught up are you on Joel Quenville's current team in Florida? Somewhat. I mean, I know. <laughs> Does it count if I say I have Aaron Eckblad on my fantasy team? I, I, I think it, I believe, I believe it does. does. Does that mean anything to you? Jonathan Huberdeau, the leader in points for the Florida Panthers? Yeah, well, I had to trade him because I had Dougie Hamilton and I needed defensive help, so I had to trade somebody. Yeah. I was either going to trade him or, or I could keep Kane, Ovechkin, and McKinnon, so I traded Huberdeau. Is that, is that good? Do you think that's good? That, I think that's good. Okay, yeah. thanks. Thanks. I have, I'm glad I have your approval. But, yeah, the team now <laughs> – like there was, there was a big article at the Athletic about Quinville's team now seems very similar to what Quinville inherited when he first came to Chicago, because he has all this young budding talent with Huberto and Ekblad, and there's so many other guys. And I just drew a complete blank with all the names, so I'm gonna have to go to their hockey reference page and figure it all out. But and Sasha Barkov, Sasha Barkov, that's the other big name I couldn't spit out. But yeah. And then Evgeny Dadanov, Mike Hoffman. And then, and then they have some guys that look interesting. Like, like Keith Yano was always one that he seemed like – I feel like he was always, like, rumored to end up in Chicago just because he seemed like he was always available at the deadline for whatever yeah. reason. And it always seemed like he was going to end up in Chicago because he might have his skills because he has that kind of the, – the ability to jump in during a play that Quinville really liked out of his defenseman. So the fact that he's playing with – Quenville down in Florida kind of made sense, but, but yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of talent there. 
I don't think it's quite as good no. as it was in Chicago or the, the team that inherited in Chicago, but like, it wouldn't be some, it wouldn't be a shock at all to see Florida kind of in the next few seasons take off. I don't know if I'm going to predict that they're going to win the cup, but I could see them getting past the first round and maybe making into some dents into the second or third round of the playoffs in the next few seasons. Right. But <clears throat> Joel Quenville's system sort of relies on getting that, uh, above expectations performance from a goaltender, and that's not what you're getting from Sergei Bobrovsky this season. No, 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 you are not. I and that was everyone said, Sir Bobrovsky. I was reading tons of articles about him at the start of the season again because of fantasy hockey. But everyone said he always started slow, like he always has a rough October, November. Well, we are now half over halfway through January. His save percentage is still under 900. His goals against average is still over three. Hockey reference has his goal saved above average at negative 11, which is not good, Bob. So, yeah, it's just – it's um, – it's, it's – like, It's like, horrible. Like we're talking about with Quinville's system, like he won with anti-Miami because the, the team in front of him was phenomenal. He doesn't quite have that talent, so I think he needs a goal – he's relying on a goaltender – a little bit heavier than he might have wanted to, and he's not getting it. I mean, right now, like, the backup, Chris Dreiger, uh, I don't know how to say that name, Dreiger, Dreiger, he was kind of out playing Bobrovsky for a while, and I think he's down for two or three weeks with an injury. So that it's, uh, it's all bad news in Florida, although that does uh, bold well for the Blackhawks because they play Quinville's team on Tuesday night, and if they're going to keep this playoff chase going – uh, they're going to need to win there, although I should mention as we're discussing this, I don't know – or excuse me, that's Monday's game, so they haven't played that one yet. But the last six games Florida's played, they've won five of them. Actually, six of seven. So there, there's there's a whole lot of Ws going back to mid-December. They're kind of on fire. So that's going to make for a very interesting game on Tuesday night. I'm I'm already feeling overtime already. So, well, as we talked about last week on musings on Madison, we sort of just expected two wins from this weekend. We already got that. So I know, yeah, yeah, we're already and, playing and, with house money, Shepard. Anything, anything against the Florida Panthers is is uh, icing on the cake. Absolutely. But uh, besides peanut butter and the <laughs> this sort of antics that Joel Quinville had on the bench, and mentioning how how much of a player's coach he sort of was which is not what he's sort of known for but like all the players loved him and you you remember sort of the morning they went into when they fired him last season uh yeah. especially Kane Kane and Taves uh is there anything else you want to say about Joel Quinville well of course there's going to be a significant there's going to be significant uh it's going to be disappointing whenever an era like that ends. I think that was one of the most disappointing thing about Quinville getting fired is it kind of felt like that whole, that was one of the most concrete examples of that era coming to an end. Like it kind of started when some of the players started leaving, like especially when Hosa had to retire. Um, it's, it's, it started feeling like all of the, the magic that you'd been able to be a part of for the last decade was kind of dying out. And so Quinville getting fired was kind of the end of all of that. And or I shouldn't say the end, but it was a it definitely took away from a significant part of what had made the last decade so fun because now some of the faces are that made everything so much fun weren't around anymore. But I think just my favorite thing of Joel Quinville is just all the memes. It was so much fun. 
like all of the things you talk about, like the antics on the bench, when he jumped up in St. Louis uh, after Seabrook killed Bacchus and he was up on the bench, just screaming his head off. And then there was like somebody photoshopped a gif and it made it look like he was like uh, on the middle of the dance floor and dirty dancing, like just straight with a disco ball and everything. Yep. It was so good. Like all the, all the mustache jokes, the Q stash Twitter account, which I haven't really seen or coach Q's mustache Twitter account, which kind of went dark after he left town. Um, I mean the, the peanut butter, all, all the F bombs on all of the shows, the, the image of him appearing already to be pretty drunk, smoking a cigar, lifting the cup and dancing with it over his head after one of the cups. I think that was the uh, 2013 one. He just, it was, it was so much fun. I think Quinville and Quinville was so a significant part of all that fun because while he has this kind of gruff exterior and he can certainly uh, light up a ref with F-bombs, he had, I think he had more fun than just about any of the players did. And I think because of the fun he had, I think all of the people watching it had plenty of fun as well, including myself. So uh, it was, it was, he was like the, in, in Chicago at least, he's like the hockey equivalent of Mike Ditka and right. wildly more successful than Mike Ditka. Wildly, wildly more successful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then like all, all the Benny's commercials. Um, like just The fact really, that he had a sort of Chicago accent without being from Chicago. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like he just, he just looked like he, you, he seemed like a kind of, you could walk into a bar right now, any corner bar in Chicago, and if Joel Quinville sat next to you and started talking, he wouldn't sound out of place. And right. I, I think that was another part of what endeared him to everyone in Chicago is he kind of looked like a Chicagoan with the mustache and everything. He sounded like one. He probably drank like one. He just, he, it was, it was the perfect combination of like coaching personality with um, coaching style and all the players. It just, everything kind of meshed perfectly when Quinville came to Chicago and it made for one hell of a decade of hockey. Right, and he definitely tailgated Bears games like in Chicago. Oh my God! The 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 week after he got fired, he was doing shot skis in the parking lot of Soldier Field. And I feel like that was like the quintessential Joel Quinville thing to do is to be ripping shots in the crowd with fans a week after he got fired. Because you know, I mean, after some people got fired, yeah, they would probably go to the bar too. He just happened to go to a, a parking lot tailgate, which is another thing that you do in Chicago. You go get drunk before a Bears game, so. Yeah, he, he fit in very well in this city, and um, it's pretty uh, – I, I, I would love to get his honest thoughts about what it's like in Florida because I can't imagine he's having the same experience down there. It's just it's the, the hockey – it's not a not traditional no. hockey market. The team isn't quite as successful, the, so the fans aren't there. Um, I'm sure it's, it's not quite the same. I, I don't imagine they've got sellouts every night down there, so – I wonder if you if you could get him. I wonder how much he, what he really thinks about that market. But with the way he is being so, um, being so buttoned up to the media, I don't think you'll ever get him to say it, even after he moves on somewhere else. It's just, it, and at, at this point in his career, what else do you have to accomplish? Your name's on the cup three times. Well, I you're, mean, you're 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 sort of you're already known as one of the greatest coaches in hockey history. Yeah. Well, I think with guys like him and this, you could say this about so many just professional athletes and coaches in general is the, the competitiveness that made them so successful is not something they can turn off. So even though he won three cups in Chicago and like you said, has 
cemented his name and his legacy in the NHL is fully intact no matter what he does for the rest of his career from an on-ice perspective, um, he still wants to go win a fourth cup and probably a fifth cup. And so, like, he can't, he can't stop that competitive drive. Maybe when he gets into, like, his 70s and decides to retire for good, you know, then maybe he can turn it off. But that competitive streak is what makes him a good coach, but it's also what's going to make sure he's not satisfied with what he's at right now. He probably wants to keep winning. And he sounds like, like – there was a quote from uh, – I think was referenced in that athletic article that uh, nobody likes winning more than I do. And that was, I believe, a direct Joe Quinville quote. And so he's going back to Florida so he can win some more games. Yeah. Win some more playoff rounds too. Hopefully. Hopefully. I'm sure if Florida makes the playoffs, I'm sure there will be plenty of people in Chicago pulling for that team solely because of Joe Quinville. And also because the Blackhawks might not be there. Well, you know, two weeks ago, I would have said that with a lot more confidence than I can right now. Do you, do you, it, it, in your opinion, knowing Q as we do, do you think he ever makes the transition to a managerial sort of GM job? Oh, I, I would think not. I, I, I would assume he's a coach, and when he decides he doesn't want to coach anymore, he's done. He does. I don't imagine. It, it seems like he has the competitive and like he the, he wants the hands-on approach of being a coach like he I don't know if he could like scouting is more of a passive thing you're kind of sitting back and watching everything it would seem like somebody like Kim and I, I don't know I've never had the chance to interview him or talk to him personally so I don't know this this is all my entire speculation but I would think he would never want to do a desk job essentially like he needs to be coaching like down on the ice behind the bench every game if he's going to be involved in hockey or he's not going to be involved in hockey at all. Well, do you want to talk now that we sort of thrown all this heap of praise on him? Do you want to sort of talk about the downfall? I, I guess. I mean, we, we had, cause he ultimately was fired. He didn't resign. So. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, and it's then like every coach has their blind spots. Like there is no such thing as a perfect hockey coach. And, and I think that the knocks, one of the knocks on Quinville was his line blending where it, it seemed like he would over tinker with lines to the point where you couldn't get any chemistry with players. And then his, and I think that that was a big one. I think I imagine it frustrated, like especially Patrick Kane because he wanted to, you know, he wanted to have consistent line mates so he could build chemistry and get some offensive production out of that group. But he could never build that chemistry because Quinville was always tinkering the lines, sometimes doing it between periods, sometimes doing it during a period, uh, just because that's the way Quinville thought he could get his team to play better. And then I think another one of the things was just his, he was definitely stuck in his ways, which isn't necessarily a bad thing when those ways are working, but when they're not, when, when things aren't going well and you're not as, willing to adjust that's when things can start getting that's when job security can start becoming an issue if you're not willing to adjust when things aren't going well on the ice and I think there was I think the the ultimate downfall of Quinville honestly was the fact that him and Stan Bowman never had the best relationship and that when the Hawks stopped winning Bowman finally had leverage with which to use to get Quinville removed from his position 
and that's ultimately what did it. From an on-ice perspective, I, there weren't too many things that Quinville, I thought, did wrong. Right. And, and you feel free, like, there's some more I'm missing here. I'm, I'm sure there's something I'm missing, but there's – he didn't do in a ton of things wrong. I think it was just – it got to the point where what, what he was doing – the rest of the league had caught up to it and had figured it out and started doing something different to counter it. And he wasn't willing to adjust with that. And he also didn't quite have the personnel that he originally had to execute his, the type of hockey he wanted to play. And that ultimately led to a regression by the team and ultimately led to him getting fired. But if there's something else I'm missing, I'm sure there's other things out there that other people would point out about why he didn't have his job anymore. That this sort of stretch pass was, sort of caught everybody caught on to it. I think there's a few players. He sort of, we've, we talked about how he sort of didn't miss on anybody. I think there's a few players he sort of forced out that the Blackhawks could really use right now. Michael Kempney comes to mind first. Michael. All right. I, and I should retract and Well, someone retract. That's the only player that I can think of that never seemed to fit in Chicago. Although there was, someone did a really good video breakdown that there was a few plays where, Kempney was kind of was kind of slack on uh, his skate to the bench for a change, and there was there was two goals I think that came about because Kempney was slow getting to the bench, the player coming on for him was behind the play and it led to an odd man rush and a goal. So, right. yeah, you can probably fault Quinville somewhat for not using Kempney in a way that maximized his ability but I don't think the player is entirely innocent in that situation either. And maybe right. he's fixed that in Washington. Maybe the coach in Washington doesn't care as much about that, but that is, I don't think Quinville's the only person at fault there. So maybe that's, that's the one player. And then yeah, that's the only one I can think of. Right. Because everybody else that's the sort of Blackhawks traded out or traded for wasn't really on Quinville as much as it was on, Bowman thinking players would fit in his system. Yeah, and, and again, and that kind of goes back to the the less than good relationship those two had. But every now and then they would sign a player. It's like Bowman would sign a guy and be like, here, Joel will like this guy. And, oh, here comes Brandon Manning. And it's like and – every, and from like the first game you saw him in preseason when Otham the CU from Detroit roasted him for a goal, it was pretty obvious Brandon Manning wasn't going to be long for Chicago. So – Again, and I think that just goes back to the frosty relationship between those two was more of the issue than anything else. But, yeah, Quinville certainly had a – he certainly had a type of a player that he really appreciated. And near the end of his tenure in Chicago, they were trying to find that piece, but they were finding, like, the worst possible examples of that piece. Yeah. Like like the stay-at-home defenseman type, and it it always ended badly. And and so, so, yeah. And I, I remember how, like, I remember the the, the uh, publicity of, of Q's sort of rant after he found out both Panarin and Hammer, but especially Hammer, were traded on the same day. Yeah, yeah. I, I never – I remember – was that ever, like, publicly made? I know, like, I, obviously they didn't want to – like, he didn't do it, like, on the record or anything like that. I know – I remember hearing there was some – frustration from Quinville because of how good Panarin was. And he obviously significantly relied upon hammer to do so many things for him, but I don't remember like, did you ever see anything tangible 
to... there were stories there were stories okay. about how about how angry he was that day yeah yeah i'm i'm sure i'm sure he was because that's i mean Panarin was one thing but i i just because of how good Panarin was but i mean you won 3 cups with Yalmerson, so yeah. something's <laughs> yeah i and and i it probably was probably more of the fact that he probably wasn't clued in on that that trade was coming down that was probably yeah. the more angering part for him and besides i think Brandon Saad was more of a Joel Quenville player than Panarin was. Right. At least at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't. It's kind of revisionist history with Panarin at this point. Yeah. Because it's, it's so hard. My, to... my, my take on Panarin is that he would have left the season for the Rangers anyway. Oh, yeah. The, I don't think the Hawks ever could have afforded him. So it's, I think it's the question is whether – I think the debate is the interesting debate for me is whether or not he, um, if he would have been as good in elsewhere as he, if he'd stayed in Chicago, if he would have been as good here as he's been everywhere else. And I'm sure he, he probably would have in hindsight. I, I don't know if I was that confident at the time that he would be like this incredible superstar player outside of Chicago. Right. not on the line with Kane. He he certainly is now, and you know more power to him. And he was I I still t- still love watching him because he's just a great hockey player. All right. Uh, anything else you want to mention about uh, the former coach of our lives, Joel Quenville? <laughs> coach of our lives? No, I just I I, I missed the memes. I I think that was. I, I, yeah, because Jeremy I, Carlton doesn't have any personality. That's, yeah. that's the that's the real that's the real real thing about, about the, Jeremy Calton. The, the closest thing to an interesting thing about Jeremy Calton is whether or not he's wearing eyeglasses on the bench right. for a game. And right. that's Brandon Kane's tire every time just for the people that are listening to this know, every time you see the tweet from the Second City Hockey account about whether or not he's wearing glasses, Brandon Kane is probably responsible for it because I never even noticed. But yeah, that's the the fact that the most interesting thing about the guy is his accessories is not a good sign. No, and it was no. yeah, Quinville, yeah, and just the way the way Quinville could when he got really pissed off, the way that he would berate officials was hilarious. I, I the I, most entertaining thing. Oh my god, there's so many, there's so many good ones. Like if you Google Joel Quinville gifts, so many of them are him yelling at officials, and I I I wish they would have been more mic'd up, like the NHL. They probably can't do it because it would just be a never-ending string of F-bombs. But if there were more more people mic'd up in the NHL, I think we'd have a much better appreciation of all the personalities in this league because I'm sure they all say hilarious things, but also I'm sure a lot of the things that players say on the ass, they don't want making, uh, making it to the light of day, in- including the coaches. But the one where the, the lasting memory I think of Joe Quinville – and this may this might be inappropriate or like unfair to him, but when he was standing on the bench during the playoff game against St. Louis, grabbing his balls and yelling it, I don't remember what he was saying, but he got fined for that. But it was just that's right. That, that's that, the enduring the enduring legacy is how is how passionate he was. Yeah, yeah, it's it's how intense he was. And there was there's another one. Uh, I think it was after. No, it wasn't it? It was a game against Arizona where he was on the bench. I think they overturned a goal. And he, there's a gif of him absolutely losing his mind. Um, there's again the gif I mentioned earlier of him lifting the cup and getting a beer poured on his head. I think that was in Boston. 
Uh, there's just there's a never-ending string of Joe Quinville gifts and memes and everything that he brought to the franchise, uh, just brought to the era, and he made it fun. It was he was he was a very fun part of a very fun era of Blackhawks hockey. Probably the most fun era of Blackhawks hockey I'll experience in my lifetime. Which is a right. little sad to say out loud, but that's what it was. Yeah, I don't think I don't know if a team will ever win three cups in six years again, and so that was the most. And they had chances at more. I don't think we'll ever see anything like that, and that was in part because in uh, in a medium-sized chunk of it. Because it's Joel Quinville. Yeah. And I just remembered another I'm, – I'm clicking through Joel Quinville gifts right now. And I encourage you, if any of you are having a bad day and you're listening to this, go to Google, type in Joel Quinville gifts, and just click on them because they're, they're all great. They're, they're just I, – I won't even spoil any more of them. Just let you, uh, just let you watch them because they're all, they're all a delight. I highly recommend it. With that said, uh, I think that's what we have to say about Joel Quinville. We'll see him again on Tuesday against the Panthers. Uh, until then, ladies and gentlemen, have a good Monday. Uh, and we'll see you at Second City Hockey on Tuesday. Uh, I'm Shepard Price. Uh, with me is Dave Melton. Uh, he's at underscore Dave Melton. Uh, and this has been Monday Morning Deep Dish. We'll see you next time. <laughs>